0: listeners. This is yours truly, Dr. Muji.
1: And yours truly. I'm just kidding. I don't ever say yours truly, mom. So I can't even try to imitate you, but this is Yabade. Listeners, as always, remember to text along your thoughts. The number is 650-360-7282. That's 650-360-7282 and also leave a review wherever you're listening. We don't care what platform that is. Just leave some sort of message about your experience here with us and share it with your community. Share Catching Curveballs with your tribe, your crew, your friends, your coworkers. Bring it up during a random meeting. Bring it up to your classmates. Ask them, have they heard of this Catching Curveballs podcast? Because if not, they should probably give it a try. At the end of the day, you never know who just needs to hear a positive message, perhaps even walk away learning something new, or even just taking a few minutes to reflect and think about life and all things psychology. And we're here to provide that service. Right, mom?
0: Yep. You're correct, my daughter. Well said.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I didn't even practice it. That was just (laughs) from the heart.
0: So today, I want us to begin, my daughter, by sharing a listener feedback with our audience. And this listener sent uh, a message regarding our episode 15 on assertiveness. The listener identified three things. Imagine three things, so many things, three things that they would have liked to know more about that episode. But today I'm just going to share one <laughs> and I'm going to quote because even though I'm picking one out of three, it is relatively long. Not that is I this don't another
1: like, long one, mom? Are I we love in it. for another? Yes,
0: another long,
1: <laughs> this is maybe a even longer. <laughs> Oh my God, I'll be is back. The let, me, let me walk away for a little break. I'll be back. Let me know when it's done. Call me, text me.
0: Actually, this might be the longest in terms of our history, because remember I'm sharing just one item oh. out of three.
1: My gosh. Well, you know what? All jokes aside, I love the listener feedback. So I wouldn't dare walk away even for a second. I'm ready for I it, know.
0: mom. I know you were just joking. So I'll begin by quoting uh, the listener. The last thing I would have liked to know more about would be any tips or advice on how to overcome being labeled difficult or disagreeable as a woman in the workplace. A, yes, the listener itemized it. There's A and there's B. (laughs) the listener must be very organized, very conscientious. And honestly, I love, I love this listener, even though I've not met the listener.
1: (laughs) I love it. agree. So
0: back to the quote, A, is it and will it always be just a quote unquote man's world? I'm not sure how other workplaces fare, but at mine, most employees are women. However, they are still labeled as quote Rude or moody, and sometimes much worse when they assert themselves in the same way their male counterparts do. B. Why is it that when a woman asserts herself in a non confrontational way, she is still seen as being aggressive or difficult? What can we do to better support one another and improve communication so we can dispel? this stereotype end of quotes well thank you once again thank you very much to the listener you've raised several important questions you've made several important points
1: are you starting with a first or b mom are you what order are you going with <laughs> i can see the um,
0: gears the going <laughs> I'm the type who is relatively organized myself. So I guess I'll go with the A and then the B or just let it flow the way it comes to my mind. A more traditional
1: (laughs) take, huh, mom? Okay. I see you.
0: Yes. So it seems to uh, still be quote unquote, a man's world, but I believe it will continue to be less of such. Unfortunately, even in settings where there are more women than men, When we as women assert ourselves, although in non-provocative or non-argumentative ways, we may still be seen as being hostile, antagonistic, or even too forceful as an individual, even by our female colleagues.
1: It's so unfair. It's not even funny. It's so unfair because I think you make a good point there that even when we are delivering a message as women in a non-provocative or even non-confrontational manner, those same messages can still be perceived as being just the opposite. You know, argumentative or confrontational. And it's like, well, what what should we do then? Should we remain silent? Is that the only approach that's going to guarantee that we're not seen as aggressors or aggressive individuals? Because I, I still, to this day and age, wonder. How that perspective is truly ever going to change? Because, mom, I'm right there with you. That maybe it will continue to be less prevalent or um, less of the norm, but unfortunately, it still very much seems to be part of the reality that we live in. And sadly, yes. even having other women view it that way, I mean, it just it's makes the situation exactly. <laughs> it makes you wonder, you know, what the ideal solution really is. What's the best approach?
0: Anyway, in terms of how we can better support one another, not only other women, men and everyone should not be ashamed or fearful of calling out whoever is labeling or insinuating that a woman is being aggressive or is overreacting. So we shouldn't be a bystander, rather, be an upstander. Remember one of our episodes, my daughter? an upstander would have confidence in women's judgment and values and believe their actions will make a difference and a positive difference for that matter.
1: I think this is one of those things, mom, where for at least the near future, there's going to have to be some sort of conscious effort and thought. When a woman does speak up in a professional or academic setting, there's going to have to be some sort of recognition that subconsciously, there might be some underlying bias there that's driving how we perceive how her statements are coming across or what her statements add to a conversation. And so we're more than likely going to have to work to actually shift that mindset, shift that inclination, because it's something that you know we might not even recognize or be fully aware of that we're doing. We might not know that When a woman in a room speaks, we're taking her words and interpreting it in a very different way, even if it's the identical comment or statement that's being said by a man. So I think there's a lot of effort that we're going to actively have to put in because otherwise the situation will just continue as is. And unfortunately, it's not been in the best direction.
0: I agree with you, my daughter. We all have our work cut out for us, not only women to women, but also in terms of men, um, everyone actually has to work against these kinds of negative stereotypes about women's behaviors, women's actions, uh, women's uh, talk. And then uh, I think another important point that I would want to share is that there's actually a difference between being assertive or self-confident and firm, wanting to listen to others, wanting to compromise versus being aggressive, violent, destructive, or even pointing fingers or making fists.
1: Can we you imagine are. if you were making a fist or pointing fingers? Well, I guess people do point fingers, but making yes. a fist when you're actually speaking, does anyone do that, mom? Does anyone actually make a fist? Or is that what we see in cartoons?
0: Well, cartoons usually might be reflections of what's happening in the real world.
1: Oh, this no. Thing. Okay. <laughs> so there must be people actually making so fists.
0: We all, my daughter, they point you know, and I want to end this because I'm taking too much time, (laughs) you know, about this particular feedback. It shows that I really enjoyed reading it, you know, and thinking about what the listener had, um, you know, had shared. So we all need to know the difference between uh, assertiveness, aggressiveness, and that people's behaviors, irrespective of gender identity, can be either or both.
1: So true, mom. And I know you're right. We should get onto today's topic, but I think there's also a flip side here because as much as I agree with the listener, and I think there's a lot of work that we all need to put into being upstanders rather than bystanders and active supporters of women, especially in settings that perhaps their voices have gone unheard for far too long. There also has to be an element of listening and becoming a good listener, Because as a woman, I do have to admit that, you know, I do believe in practicing assertive communication, but I also recognize that there might be moments where I do cross a line. None of us are perfect. And there might be moments potentially that I do take it a step too far. Maybe I'm not making a fist, but maybe I do say something in a way that is more destructive than constructive when it comes to criticism or feedback. And I think for all of us, there's an element of humility that's required where if you say something or deliver a message and you find that the entire room or those that you perhaps trust share feedback to you about how you delivered that message, it's worthwhile to listen. Even if naturally you don't agree and you think that perhaps this is just another case of stereotyping or typecasting, truly listen to them. Is there anything that you can take or learn from their feedback to better deliver your message in the future? Because what you don't want to do is attempt to overcompensate to the point where you are being offensive and you are burning bridges. That's not the intent here. The intent is to have your voice heard. It's not to be the only voice that is heard. I
0: agree that there's a thin line between being assertive and being aggressive Right. And that many of us sometimes inadvertently cross over from Agreed. being assertive to being aggressive.
1: Pa- Particularly
0: people like us, like <laughs> me, I have this voice. You know, yeah, leave it to yourself.
1: My <laughs> voice is not, come on, mom.
0: <laughs> no, that sometimes it, s- it seems as if I'm fighting and I'm just making a point.
1: <laughs> right, right. I completely fear. And that's a critical element here because we don't want to bulldoze other voices other voices still add value. It's more a case that we want to ensure that our voices are being heard and they are being respected at the end of the day. All right, well, let's move on to a topic where maybe there's another gender difference, actually. Maybe the same theme will run its course through the rest of this episode. We'll see, to be determined. Today, we're discussing thrill-seeking. That's right, thrill-seeking. I bet listeners, would you ever have expected this to be a topic? Come on now, text us. Let us know if this is coming from out of left field, because trust me, it feels that way for me, but I'm so excited to cover this topic. Mom, can you get us started in explaining how psychology relates to thrill-seeking? I mean, why are we even here today?
0: Yes, my daughter, there is a psychology behind thrill-seeking, actually behind every phenomenon. I'm always looking for the psychology behind every phenomenon. Thrill seeking, also referred to as sensation seeking or excitement seeking, is the tendency for us to be searching or looking for and at the same time enjoying and being enthusiastic, being eager, taking part in extreme or intense sports or other activities that involve physical risk. It's actually a personality trait that is defined by the search for experiences and feelings. So we see that my daughter, a thrill seeker, may be referred to as an adventure seeker, a daredevil. Regardless of the terminology that we choose to use, such people tend to pursue new and different sensations, feelings, and experiences. And they actually bask in such experiences or such feelings or such sensations.
1: Well, see, that's what makes this topic so exciting because When I think of a thrill seeker, I have such positive associations with the term. Like you said, regardless of what we call it, adventure seeking, adrenaline junkie, whatever the case may be, it's something that makes me think, wow, this is a person who just makes the most out of life. They aren't scared of new experiences. They're willing to put themselves out there. And to a degree, I imagine all of us could really learn a lot from someone like that. But I know mom, especially with the episode prep, you've explained that it's not so simple. It's not just this positive characteristic that we should all aspire to be. It just seems to be a personality trait where for some people, they really are looking for new experiences and they not only search for them, but they enjoy the process. They not only crave it and look for it, but as they're doing it, it's something that gives them a lot of reward. It's something that you know they find almost comfort in, whereas for a lot of others, that would be terrifying or some of those experiences would be terrifying.
0: It is a complex phenomenon. Thrill seeking allows people to try something new such that they would want to join a dance club. They would want to skydive. They want to engage in mountain climbing, chasing a tornado. Are you familiar with that? That some people actually crave You know, uh,
1: I didn't know those were thrill seekers. I thought those were just bored people. If you're chasing (laughs) a tornado, I have questions for you. Let us know, email us, text us. I need to talk to you. We need to, we need to dive into this.
0: So um, there are others that would just engage in activities that will enable them to fulfill a challenge. So it doesn't have to be the extreme. It could involve those who like to run maybe an ultra marathon. For instance, or who might want to engage in what we call mega avalanche. Um, a is, what? Yeah, mega mega mega-valanche,
1: avalanche? Oh, mega avalanche?
0: Oh, mega avalanche. Mega avalanche. <laughs> it is a tongue twisting word, my daughter.
1: Exactly. Mega avalanche. <laughs> yes.
0: It entails an individual, you know, um, going downhill on a mountain bike, uh, 18.6 miles. You know, and it's kind of marathon style race. Um, Interesting. I so the it.
1: distance doesn't seem terrifying, but then the mountain aspect yes. is what is intimidating. Like that's downhill. Just t- yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> Plain and simple. Even when
0: I'm in a vehicle and it's just going downhill, um, like coming to, um san francisco you know you oh yeah oh, we <laughs> are
1: the hill capital we are the mecca of hills mom <laughs> and
0: you were driving downhill i was thinking that oh my god we're going to some assault
1: so i'm a thrill seeker for driving in san francisco listeners if you aren't familiar with the bay area and especially downtown san francisco We have some extreme hills to the Mm -hmm. point where you will be driving up one of them, unable to see the light at an intersection, hoping that pedestrians aren't crossing because you have no clue how you'll be able to spot them in time. There are some streets that are so infamous for having the steepest hills in the city. And when I have to drive through them, I... I have to brace myself. I have to prepare mentally for what I'm getting ready to do because- Very it, dangerous. Yeah, it is. And actually, that's true. I am a thrill seeker now. I think I qualify, mom.
0: Not exactly, my daughter, because you don't engage in some many of these other extreme activities.
1: That is true. That yeah. is very true. So
0: if we want to look at the traditional view of thrill seeking, then we'll be considering certain aspects- One conceptualization is that it has four aspects or four elements, experience-seeking, thrill and adventure-seeking. There is also disinhibition. By that, I mean the individual will be doing something on a whim or being impulsive. And then the fourth aspect will be boredom susceptibility. That is, the individual will be easily bored.
1: We know a thrill seeker very well. I would say it's a thrill seeker who satisfies all four aspects of this traditional view that you've given us here, Mom. And that is my little brother, your little baby. I truly feel as if he just sees the world very differently to the both of us, actually, to most other Mm -hmm. people I know. And One of my favorite activities and exercises is trying to get into his head and trying to get a sense of his motivation for doing certain things and kind of what he gets out of it. Even just if you spend the day with him, it can be entertaining because you can't help but look over and wonder, wait, why do you want to prepare for this ultra long bike ride, this four hour bike ride that's going to take you all morning before most people are even awake? I mean, his hours are unbelievable because it's not as if he doesn't have a full-time job that he's also starting early. He then will fit in, you know, before the sun rises, he'll fit in a marathon long distance. Um, long distance bike ride or an ultra long run, or he'll be working on a marathon or he'll be sharing. I think now his new thing is an ultra marathon. That's his next adventure, mom. That's the type of person he is. And when you spend time with that type of person, you can't help but wonder, you know, how are we related? Because we have the same parents. We grew up in the same household. We kind of almost have taken similar paths in life, yet he's just so different in this way. It's un- like, it's eerie to me almost, but I have to admit that I really admire him because there's so many life experiences that I feel he just goes fully into. He doesn't have the same level of fear or worry that I might have Um, And so there's so many experiences that he's had in his lifetime that I can't help but tell him, you will have the best stories when you're a grandparent, when you're a parent, you will just have the best stories because this is just mind-blowing and out of this world. Mm. Um,
0: Actually, I I can relate to that to the extent that I too can compare myself to some of my brothers and there's some activities that they've engaged in that I can't contemplate. Uh, my daughter, I have never been on a roller coaster ride. I've never engaged in bungee jumping. I don't even like dark passageways. What is happening never... right now?
1: I'm sorry. Wait, we have to pause. What is going on?
0: What? <laughs> what? I'm trying to tell you the things that I have by other people doing, but I never. <laughs> nope.
1: a roller coaster. You've never been on a I'm roller coaster. I'm a good coaster. observer.
0: I'm a good observer. I can watch, you know. Oh, maybe I get my thrill my from gosh. watching others screaming.
1: We have to change that soon. You are way too close to the yes. roller coaster hub. You are way too close. I wow.
0: Okay. Have you ever entered a Halloween haunted um, house? Of I course, haven't I have not. Oh, my,
1: that one too. You? <laughs> nope.
0: Nope. Oh, maybe I'm boring.
1: No, I'm just amazed because. How, mom? Oh my God! Let let me
0: share, let me share. And I haven't told you this before. Let me share a story to let you get an idea of how I can be relatively conservative or not a thrill seeker at all. Growing up, say around the time I was 13 years of age or thereabout, we had this swimming competition in Nigeria and another part of the country. And when we got there, For some reasons, we were not able to uh, practice swimming for a competition in a swimming pool, in a natural, regular swimming pool. So we had to go to a naturally, a man-made pond. You wouldn't believe it, how excited the other people were, girls, boys, you know, 13 to we are all girls, boys and things like that. Now, when it got to my, and this was just for practicing before the actual competition, Immediately, I dove into the pond and I saw something. I don't know what it is. I just panicked, freaked out, started screaming. I had to swim back and get out. You wouldn't believe that it was a leaf or it was something (laughs) just floating. (laughs) Meanwhile, the others kept on swimming. And when they came out, they were so enthusiastic. Some of them fell back into the pond. (laughs) Nope. Nope.
1: Mom's like, never again. (laughs) Since then, I've been
0: even afraid of such ponds.
1: Wow. You, the swimmer, the Michael Phelps, you know, 2.0. Michael Phelps on a budget.
0: But you see, my daughter, I think I actually fall in between a thrill seeker and a chill seeker.
1: (laughs) A chill seeker. I like it.
0: A chill seeker will crave calmness. Not chaos, so I'm not in either of those extremes. I'm somewhere in the middle, I would say, or maybe you would say I'm boring because it's the extremes that are exciting, and I, I don't belong to the extremes. No. I don't do the See, extremes.
1: You are not boring, but I do like the new term, or at least I've not heard it before. A chill seeker, I like that. I don't agree that the extremes are exciting, though. I. Honestly, I think somewhere midpoint, maybe a bit closer to Thrill Seeker is probably peak excitement.
0: Yes, my daughter, Um, sometimes or many a times, I just want to be safe than sorry. I think that's, there's a phrase, you know, just be safe.
1: (laughs) Yes, mom. That is a phrase. That is not an original thought from you.
0: (laughs) No, sorry. I thought it was original.
1: (laughs) That is a very popular saying.
0: (laughs) Our family is actually a good example in terms of the role of both nature and nurture in explaining thrill or sensation-seeking. Interestingly, the genetic basis of sensation-seeking was investigated among adolescent twin pairs. And in trying to explain individual differences, the study showed that genetic variables accounted for between 40-something percent and 60-something percent of the differences in the sample studied.
1: That's a pretty notable amount, 40-something to 60-something. That's quite a lot. That's a large role for genetics to play. And I guess it's though similar to other personality traits, right? You have twins who behave completely differently, and these differences can even be observed during infancy. So it's not a case of, oh, over time, these twins have been exposed to a different group of friends or different factors externally. You're seeing these differences really early on in life. So mom, what's happening in the brain of thrill seekers? Back to my little brother, we have so many similarities, but our way of thinking about some of the same activities can be incredibly different. I mean, incredibly different. Did I say that enough? Can I say it one more time? Yeah. Right, mom? Yeah. Incredibly different. Yeah. And I
0: do see the differences, you know, the the similarities and differences between you and him anyway. It's obvious. More is in our control, actually, when nurture or environment contributes more to a phenomenon than nature or biology. And I'm one of those who will be in the camp that more or less touts the importance of nurture, the environment, society, than uh, genetics. Again, part of it is because I see that as a more um, optimistic or positive view, because that means you can uh, make a difference, you can change vis-a-vis if, The emphasis was on genetics where you could not uh, change. But again, both are important. Uh, Genetics predisposes us. And then we build on that based on nurture, based on socialization, upbringing, and things like that, your environment. Staying with the influence of genetics anyway, in terms of high sensation seekers, it's been shown that the brain produces more dopamine and less norepinephrine during novel or new encounters than in low sensation seekers. So you can see the differences between high sensation seekers and low sensation seekers in terms of the hormones that the brain produces. So what we see is that sensation seekers may be drawn to new and exciting activities because of high thrill and low tension. Some sensation seekers, however, explain that these activities allow them to achieve a flow state. And to enter this condition, by that to enter the flow state, high sensation seekers require more stimulation than the average, than the typical person.
1: That's so interesting to think about the differences in the brain there. And even to realizing that in order for sensation seekers to achieve that flow state, they just are going to need more. They're going to need more stimulation than what other people might need. The same experiences just aren't going to do it for them, which makes me wonder what comes first. Is it the brain chemistry the difference in dopamine and norepinephrine that motivates people to become thrill seekers? Or is it that rush or the new experiences or the feelings during those moments that makes them seek out those experiences that are thrilling or more thrilling than the rest of, well, our experiences? I know that's kind of a chicken or the egg type of question, but I think it's really important here. Is it a case of the brain activity, the brain chemical activity, that's the driver, or is it what's being felt during a new experience? Like, what is it that's motivating thrill-seekers? What comes first, mom, the chicken or the egg?
0: Good question, my daughter. Um, let me see. I have to think about that because I'm one of those who tend to avoid the chicken or the egg first types of questions. Um, with thrill-seeking, I think it goes both ways. Genetics or brain chemistry might make some people more inclined to seek certain experiences. Then how they feel during those moments keeps them pursuing such experiences. But I can also imagine that for some people, the rush elicited by new or exciting experiences can influence their brain chemistry, which now keeps them chasing The rush.
1: Okay. So you kind of took a a a both. I know you kind (laughs) of took a both approach there too, right? Where genetics can come first in some people, sure. But it's those feelings that they have during those thrilling moments that keeps them continuing to pursue those similar experiences or similarly exciting experiences. But then for other people, maybe it's just how they feel when they do finally experience something thrilling that keeps them really going because that's the um almost the initial trigger you know a secret come in listeners gather around let me tell you <laughs> when someone asks you a chicken or egg kind of question <laughs> what my mom did there is probably the best approach you can take unless you know Thank for a you. fact which came first right but in all seriousness when someone asks me that type of question i try to like think through are both directions possible? If there's even a trace hint of yes, both directions are possible, then that's my answer right there. I run with it and I give my explanation as to why both directions are feasible and reasonable. And the chicken technically can come first, but the egg also technically can come first.
0: My daughter, I mean, remember that we I had mentioned that this is a very complex phenomenon.
1: Exactly. So
0: it could work differently for different people. That is why some people, using your analogy, It will be chicken before the egg for some other people. It will be the egg before the chicken, but thanks for the compliment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe I learned it from you, actually, that approach. But nevertheless, let's move on. You know, Mm. going back to what I said before, there really are certain characteristics that I admire about Thrill Seekers. Even thinking of my little brother, there's so many situations that I just look at him and think, wow, that is amazing. I'm awed. I'm inspired. And part of that is almost this sense of fearlessness, especially when it does come to new situations. I might be more hesitant to try something or to go somewhere, but my little brother usually won't be. It's more of a, just see what happens type mindset that he has.
0: Well, my daughter, I agree with you. Do you notice I'm always agreeing with you, (laughs) but on this one, I do agree with you. You know, the one of a kind experiences that thrill seekers look for can actually provide them joy contentment and priceless memories. So there are a lot of advantages or pros of being a thrill seeker. And then new experiences allow such people to grow. And we can learn from that. Thrill seekers tend to be proactive and helpful, so they can be great bystanders. So think back to bystander effect. Many people anticipate and overanalyze how to respond to a situation, whereas thrill-seekers will jump headfirst into the fray and trust themselves to react appropriately.
1: Trust themselves. Trust themselves to react appropriately. That is fascinating. I think that's an interesting aspect that I, you know, using our example, our case study here, the person we both know, my little brother, I have to agree. Like, I think that's what it goes back to a lot of the time is just that trust that regardless of what happens, he'll find a way. He has the skill sets to navigate through whatever this new experience might be. And I hope for everyone listening, I know for me, even thinking about it now, I want to build that, you know, that trust in myself, that trust that I do have the capabilities. I can figure things out if it's a completely new experience. I mean, I don't think I'm as terrified or fearful of new experiences. If anything, I love them, but just not to the same degree as a true thrill seeker. This is interesting, mom. That's a different dimension.
0: Actually, there's compelling research to support your position and um, the aspect of trusting, how they trust themselves as a thrill seekers or sensation seekers. Uh, for example, a psychologist, Dr. Kenneth Carter, is known for having done work around sensation seeking. Um, he's a professor at Emory University. He actually found that High thrill seekers see impending stressful events as problems to address rather than dangers that will overcome or crush them. And that sort of thinking serves as a buffer. It protects high sensation-seeking individuals from life's stresses. So we can also relate this to resilience. Thrill seekers develop resilience as a result of the difficult goals they achieve, this benefit corresponds to how thrill seekers describe their own experience. They usually report less stress, more positive emotions, higher life satisfaction. But there's a but, and you know, usually B U T, not B U T T. I'm
1: sorry, I cannot. I'm so
0: sorry. But, as might be expected, thrill-seeking can also have negative consequences.
1: Let me get it together. Uh, <laughs> sensation-seeking expert, sensation-seeking researcher, how fun must that line of research be? Can you imagine if the people you studied were thrill seekers, you'd probably have to climb Mount Everest with them or deep sea dive with them, or well, maybe that's not part of the job, but still I can only imagine the cool experiences that you'd get to observe other people take part in or hear about. And mom, I can completely see the positives here. And I can also see that relationship to resilience, but what about the not so great consequences?
0: It's actually difficult to come up with not so great consequences of being a thrill or sensation seeker, but there are, (laughs) like anything, there would always be pros and cons. In this connection, thrill seekers, sensation seekers, uh, they are actually more prone to injuries. Naturally, engaging in extreme activities impulsively is likely to increase or would increase injuries not only in terms of numbers of injuries, but even the seriousness. Then another one that I can think of is that for thrill-seekers and thrill-seeking, studies have actually shown that it can be associated with some mental health disorders uh, because it could involve, for instance, maybe bipolar disorder. So thrill-seekers, you know, many of the things they do will be on a whim, impulsive. And to that extent, we can see that being a con, but Mm -hmm. again, that would be for that's rare. It's not the commonality.
1: I see. I see. It's funny. You mentioned the injury part because that is something, you know, even with my little brother, I also am physically active. I love my workouts, my exercise, my running, cycling, everything, but because he does take it to the next level, his body goes through a lot. I think my um, running caution or word of caution to him is always really another case of plantar fasciitis, another knee injury, another this, like what about your body when you're 50? Think about, you know, long-term, but I know he's done his thinking. I know for I did him. something
0: My daughter had something I to know. think about, you know, when you use your body in some of these things, you know? Uh, Just as someone like me in the 60s, in my 60s, (laughs) I've enjoyed, you know, the races, the running, the swimming, the whatever, when I was much younger. But now it's taking a toll little by little. So everything, ideally for me, the way I see life, it's about moderation, but Agreed. you know, there's some people and I'm thinking of my son, your brother, you can't tell him that no, he has to don't, find out don't. for himself yeah. whether Agreed. he's overdoing it or not.
1: You know, mom, I agree with you. Life truly for me is about balance and not the extremes. That's something that it's just the mindset that I've embraced in life and I feel has really helped me a lot. But beyond that, there still is so much we can learn from thrill seekers. Even if we aren't going to take it to the extreme, there's so much value in how they approach life, especially during those moments when we're all bound to face a new challenge. Maybe we're a bit nervous or scared. There's some value in thinking like a thrill seeker or embracing the thrill seeking mindset. Can you walk us through kind of what we really can take away and learn from them?
0: Yes, there's no doubt that there's some things that we can learn uh, from thrill seekers. In as much as for someone like me, it's more my watchword is balance, moderation, and things like that. But there are also other attributes of theirs that I admire, and that I'm sure that um, our listeners too will be drawn to, and these include that they have positive emotions. You know, in engaging in such activities, it's plenty of fun for them. Um, They also are high on gratitude or appreciativeness. They appreciate things. They also are very hopeful or anticipate the joy or the pleasure they would derive in some of those activities. And then they also have, um, I can say they are high in pride, but I mean, good pride, you know, there are different kinds of pride, good pride, like dignity and self-respect. So I'm not talking of quote unquote bad pride, which will be about them having sense of superiority or being arrogant. Then there's no doubt that uh, what we can also learn is that challenges provide learning opportunities. Remember the Japanese proverb, fall seven times, stand up eight.
1: All right. Well, mom, it's been so much fun, right? We'll have to start planning that amusement trip, the haunted house, the pond. We have a lot to do, actually. And fun fact, Cedar Point is really close to you. So this amusement park, it's happening. (laughs) It's happening. All right. Well, I think we're ready for your quote for today.
0: My quote for today is by Seneca. Seneca was a Roman Stoic philosopher, statesman, and dramatist, and I love this quote of his. Quote, it is not because life is difficult that we do not dare. Life is difficult because we do not dare. End of quote. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for spending time with us.
1: Yes, we want to hear from you give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can text us at 650-360-7282. That's 650-360-7282. Also, remember to follow us on Instagram for much more content at Catching Curveballs Podcast. That's Catching Curveballs Podcast. And as always, remember to rate, review, and tell everyone you know about the podcast.
0: We cannot wait to connect with you soon.